want to introduce our uh, preacher to you today. Uh, so most of you will know him, but some of you here won't. Uh, his name is Tim Nichols. Uh, Tim uh, used to be here. Uh, he was an apprentice uh, here uh, a few years ago now. Uh, and uh, he always comes back during his holidays. He's a Bible college student. He's just finished uh, third year at Moore College. and He's going to go back for fourth year. Afterwards, you can ask him why he comes back every holidays to, uh, to, uh, to KL. Uh, so it's lovely to have him back with us again. Uh, and thank you, Tim. Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be back again. Uh, not just for the food that I'm back, by the way. <laughs> Although I hear there's lunch next week. Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing on in our, our series of Luke, and there's an outline of the talk that you can uh, follow along if that's uh, helpful for you. Uh, and the Bible passage you get is on page 1031, so you can look that up uh, as well. But as we have a look at God's Word, uh, why don't we pray and ask for God to speak to us. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider your holy word now, fill our minds with light and truth, fill our hearts with love and trust. Deliver us from hardness of heart and enable us to joyfully submit to your Son. We pray these things for the glory of your name. Amen. Uh, well, I got back from, to Malaysia just in time to catch the Hunger Games uh, at the movies. I wonder, if, has anyone seen that movie yet? Oh, it's not going as well as it did with the books then. Uh, I wanted to know something of this craze, because in Australia, this movie and these books have been read uh, by everyone. Uh, but I must say, it wasn't quite what I expected. Uh, the world of the Hunger Games is a disturbing one. It's, it's, a, it's a world full of, of despair, one where the powerful of the world are oppressing the weak, one where uh, people kill each other like a game which others watch as entertainment and the greed of some uh, fuels the poverty and the destruction of, of many others. And I think as I watched it, I, it was just disturbing. It was disgusting in a kind of way. But I think what disturbed me as I watched the movie on reflection was that it was all too close to reality in many ways. I wonder if you are like me and sometimes you look on the world around you and you think, this world is full of gloom. This world is full of despair. Maybe you opened the star earlier this week to read of uh, the three girls in Alice Star which were uh, raped and then thrown into the canal to die. Uh, maybe you, you look on the world and you just see uh, the corruption of the various leaders around, uh, around the world. Maybe you read of the, the typhoon in the Philippines or maybe you saw the floods that have been all over Pahang this week as well. Or you've just been at work. You've looked at your, your colleagues, come home, and your family, your friends, and you just see selfishness and pride, anger, lust. I think there's certainly a lot of gloom in our world and not just in the Hunger Games. So I wonder if you're like me and you long for God to actually come to bring a change to things. To, to turn the blackness and gloom to light, to, to conquer evil and to finally establish righteousness. Now, that longing for intervention is a big theme in the Hunger Games and it comes from a very unexpected quarter in that movie from a young girl from section 12 who is fighting to save her life. How would you expect God to intervene 
in our world. To come and get rid of all the corrupt leadership, to stop all the typhoons and the floods, to end the poverty and the sickness and, and, and death once for all. If that's what we're looking for, it would be very easy to uh, think that God did nothing in our world, wouldn't it? Uh, but the passage today that we're reading in Luke tells us God has intervened in a wonderful and yet unexpected way by sending a king to rule his world, to save our world, his own son, Jesus Christ. The challenge for us today is whether we will uh, believe it and live in accordance with it. Oh, well, last week we saw the uh, beginnings of God's intervention in the world with the birth or the prediction of the birth of John the Baptist. He was going to be a great prophet who would go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And, and as you read the passage today, it's surprisingly similar to last week. I don't know if you picked it up. You have the angel Gabriel appealing, appearing to someone who gets very afraid. He promises a child. He gives their name. He explains how they're going to fulfil scripture in some way that's significant. He gives a sign that it's going to happen and then he leaves. Practically the same. Luke wants us to compare the prediction of John's birth and the prediction of Jesus because then we can see the greatness of Jesus and our need to respond rightly to him. Well, it all uh, begins, uh, point one, with the... uh, Angelic appearance to Mary. Uh, Verse 26, you can follow along with me. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Well, importantly, we see uh, straight away three differences, in fact, between John's birth and Jesus. Uh, no, firstly here, the, the angel doesn't appear in a, a public worship in the temple in Jerusalem. He appears to a young girl in a little town called Nazareth, which probably no one has ever heard of. Probably like one of those kampungs somewhere out in the village that we have not heard of. Well, secondly, the appearance comes not to a priestly family. It comes to a kingly family. Mary is betrothed to Joseph who is of the house of the great King David. And thirdly, this time it's not to a barren woman who's going to have the baby, but to a virgin, the Virgin Mary. Uh, the differences could not be more stark in that way, and it invites us to reflect on what's going on here. Why Nazareth? Why the house of David? Why a virgin? And to find the answers to those questions, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, to passages like we just read in Isaiah where God had promised over 600 years earlier that a little child would be born who would bring in the kingdom of God and rule over God's people and save them from the gloom and death that they were under. Uh, Have a look again at uh, Isaiah chapter 9, a few verses there. Listen to the allusions to Luke. In the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Well, why Nazareth of Galilee? It's because Isaiah had promised that the child who would come to save God's people and rule God's people would come from Galilee. Why the household of David? Because Isaiah had promised that the king who would shine light into the gloom and darkness would come and sit on the throne of David. Why a virgin? Because God had promised again through Isaiah that the sign that this child would, had come would be that she would come, he, he would be born to a virgin. And that's actually a few chapters earlier in chapter 7 verse 14. Again we can compare to Luke. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Compare that to Luke one thirty one. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. You see what Luke is doing? These differences are important because Luke is at pains to show us that God is finally and, and, and magnificently intervening into our dark and gloomy world with the birth of his king. At last, all these promises from Isaiah are coming true. The king is coming. So that brings us to our second point, verse 28 to 33. Jesus' unique identity. Well, the, the angel Gabriel brings the message to Mary. Have a look again at verse 28. Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, we have another contrast to John. This time it starts with the greeting. O favoured one, the Lord is with you. Verse 30, you have found favour with God. Zechariah did not get any greeting like that. It's quite a remarkable greeting in many ways. And Mary is rightly uh, taken aback and a bit confused by what's going on. I think it's important for us to reflect a moment on those words though. O favoured one, the Lord is with you. Because unfortunately these words have been twisted terribly uh, by many Christians uh, during church history. Uh, Many, uh, especially in Catholic churches, but also in Anglican churches, have taken verses like this one as a reason to adore and to worship Mary. They say she was the mother of God. In fact, Jesus was sinless, so she must have been sinless as well. We should, uh, we should adore her. We should pray to her. We should praise her. It misses the point of this passage terribly. 
Mary is favoured. And if you look up the word in the Greek, what does that word actually mean? It's the word grace. Mary received grace, an undeserved gift. Mary did not earn this gift of having the child Jesus being born to her. It was a gift to her of God. I think if Mary actually saw the way that many churches are, uh, actually worship Mary now, she would be appalled by what happened because she knew, as her response later shows, that the point of this passage is not her. The person who is meant to be worshipped and praised and adored in this passage is, of course, her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the real focus of this passage. He is the one for us to worship and adore and to name our churches after. Well, uh, when a child is born, uh, we like to imagine uh, what they're going to be like. I could just imagine my parents looking at me uh, in the cradle thinking, wow, such sparkling green eyes. He's sure to be smart and good looking when he grows up. Or maybe he's going to be sneaky and a liar, I don't know. The angel, it's very hard, isn't it, to know what your baby's going to be like uh, when they're growing up. But Mary gets a head start because the angel tells her exactly what her child uh, is going to be and why he's worthy of our worship. Now, there's four points here. Firstly, there's his name. His name is Jesus. Uh, Matthew tells us that name means God saves because he's going to be the one who comes and saves God's people from their sin as he dies on the cross. I will come back to that in a moment. Secondly, he he will be great. He will be great. Now, John the Baptist was called great before the Lord. In the Old Testament, Moses is called great, a great man of God. Uh, Abraham was promised a great name. But simply to be called great... Well, that was a title that was reserved only for God and for his Messiah. One part of the Old Testament that speaks of that is in the book of Micah, chapter 5. I think it's on the screen. Got the shepherding language from the play as well. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This child is going to be great because he is the king, he is the Messiah, he is the one who came as the ruler of God's people to save God's people. Thirdly, if we move on, he will be called the son of the most high. Again, listen to how this fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7 is on the screen. God had promised to David long ago about the coming of his son to rule the nations. He says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, 
whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the term Son of God uh, in the Old Testament is a term like your Royal Highness or maybe Dato here in, in Malaysia. It's a, it's, it's a term that meant king, the king of God's people. The Son of God would be the one who would rule over God's people and his kingdom forever. And here the angel announces, Jesus is the Son of God, come to fulfil these promises and rule over God's people. And that's a wonderful and amazing thing. In the Old Testament, the Son of God, his rule would be marked by joy and gladness. He would defeat all God's enemies and bring peace and justice. Uh, he'd rule with truth and humility, with meekness and with steadfast love. I mean, imagine having a ruler like this in our lives, one who loved and cared for his people. Imagine living in a world or a country like that where corruption and selfishness and greed were no more. That is the king Jesus is. That is the world that he is bringing. Jesus came to bring God's perfect rule to earth and restore God's blessing upon his world. How would Jesus do that? How would Jesus uh, bring blessing again to our world and rule as the Son of God? It's very interesting. Do you remember what happened as Jesus died on the cross? Uh, There was the sign above his head, of course. This is the king of the Jews. Uh, There was the mocking. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then at the climax, as he died, there was the Roman centurion standing there. What did he say? Truly this was the son of God. Jesus was crowned as the son of God, as the king, at his death. Because it was at his death that Jesus was truly coming to save us and to rule us. There he would save us from our ultimate problem and get rid of the gloom from our world. It's right for us, isn't it, to long for God to intervene and get rid of the floods and the typhoon, to get rid of the sickness and the death, to get rid of such evil as murder, lying and theft. It would be nice, wouldn't it, to open the newspaper for once and read some good news, wouldn't it? And that's a great wish. And Jesus will definitely bring all of those things when he returns. But Jesus came to do so much more than just those things, as important as they all are. I wonder if you know that Jesus actually came to fix the root cause of all of those problems, to bring people into his kingdom to bring people into relationship with God. Uh, When I was coming, uh, uh, flying over here uh, to Malaysia a few weeks ago, I was waiting at Sydney Airport where it was AirAsia, my flight was delayed, of course, Uh, and there was a Malaysian auntie who was uh, sitting next to me and we got talking about Christianity. Uh, Her whole family was Christian. Uh, They'd shared the gospel with her. They told her she needed Jesus. But what did she think? Only people who have bad principles need Jesus. She had good principles. She lived a good life. She wouldn't need Jesus. She'd be fine without him. 
Of course, I tried to explain to her that she was terribly mistaken, uh, that she was maybe like a child who thought that she never needed to talk to her parents or uh, that her good principles would never actually reach to God's perfect standards. Uh, But she thought she was different. She thought that she didn't need God. Maybe we think like that as well. I mean, all of us, I think, at times think that we don't really reject God, that we don't really need anything from him. But the reality is that all of us, like that Malaysian auntie, fall short of God's standards. We all deserve God's judgment coming upon us. And that's why God's intervention into our world is what it was. Why it wasn't just ending typhoons or ending sickness. God came because he loved our world and he wanted to deal with the root cause of all our problems. Jesus came to die for us. He came to rescue us from the judgment of God when he died on the cross. He came to bring people back into the kingdom of God where there would be no more gloom but only hope. Well, the fourth point is that Jesus' reign, his kingdom, would remain forever. He would have an eternal kingdom. Because as the end of Luke's gospel will show us, he didn't just stay dead on the cross. Uh, Three days later, he was raised from the dead. Another 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand of God where he would reign as God's king forever and ever. I don't know if you've thought about that, but right now, even as we sit here, Jesus is reigning. He is sitting on his throne in heaven. One day he will return. We will see his rule in all of its completeness, in all of its authority, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses him as Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus has a kingdom that reigns and endures forever. It began at his death and it continues to this day. Do you know what it is like to be in Jesus' kingdom? Do you know what it is like to be saved from God's judgment and to be with Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Do you know what it is like for him to be the king in your life from beginning to end? That is who Luke tells us Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God come down to save us. He is the Son of God come down to save us. If you don't have Jesus as your king today, come and talk to someone about it and maybe the person who brought you here today. Well, we come to our third point, Jesus' miraculous conception. Uh, understandably, Mary is a bit uh, worried about the whole thing. Verse 34, how would this be since I am a virgin? Uh, the angel's explanation is pretty simple and yet profound. Verse 35, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child will be, will be born will be called Holy the Son of God. Simple explanation. Uh, The child is going to be conceived, not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Done. Now, it's important here again for us to correct another misunderstanding of this passage. And this one is especially amongst Muslims. Many Muslims think that when we call Jesus the Son of God, we mean that God 
had sex with Mary and then produced Jesus, the Son of God. Now, understandably for them, as much as it is for us, that's a repulsive and a disgusting idea. Uh, Actually, in the time when Luke wrote this, that is what uh, the Greeks and the Romans believed their gods did. Uh, their gods uh, had, had became people so that they could have sex with human beings. Now we need to have a look at what Luke actually says here so that we avoid any such confusion. Uh, listen again to what he says. Verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, there's no connotations here of some sexual act. Now, what's going on here is rather unsurprisingly, allusions back to the Old Testament. By saying the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, it's an allusion back to creation where the Holy Spirit was hovering over creation and then came into Adam to breathe new life into him. And then the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Well, again, that's an allusion to the Old Testament, to the tabernacle, where God's glory overshadowed the tabernacle as a visible sign of his presence amongst his people. Do you see what the angel is saying here? The angel is saying Jesus is not only the son of God in the sense that he is the Messiah, uh, the promised king of Israel. The angel is saying that Jesus' supernatural birth shows that he is actually God himself, uh, God the son, the second person of the Trinity, come to take his presence among his people. That is why he can be called great with no qualification. That is why his rule remains forever and ever. Jesus is God incarnate. God come in the flesh to save us. So you can maybe talk to that next time you meet your Muslim friends, what we mean by son of God. Well, maybe you're left just wondering, maybe a bit like last week, this virgin birth business, it all sounds sounds a bit bizarre. Uh, Because the fact of the matter is that uh, not many virgins tend to have babies. Uh, I don't know, it sounds more like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Something that's been made up. I mean, it's a pretty understandable objection. Now, you can just imagine if, uh, you know, one of the girls from the youth group just, you know, wandered in the middle of church now and, you know, her tummy's in, she's like, Mom, I think I've had a, I'm going to have a baby. Uh, you'd be a bit worried about the whole thing. And you, the last thing that you'd expect is that she had, the Holy Spirit had come and then she just had a baby while she was in youth group. We'd think that she'd done something terribly wrong or something terribly wrong had happened to her. But before we write this whole thing off as a fairy tale, let's look again at what the angel says. Verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. See, in the end, it just comes down to your view of God. If you believe that there's a God, he controls our world, he rules our world, then it wouldn't surprise us at all if he chose to do a miracle, uh, such as a virgin birth, especially for someone like Jesus. Nothing's impossible for him. 
In fact, it's entirely appropriate given who Jesus is. But if you just reject the idea of God outright, if there's no God, then yes, I agree with you. The virgin birth is ludicrous and stupid because miracles are impossible. We need to remember who Luke is when he writes this. Uh, Luke is writing as, as a historian, as an eyewitness. We saw that last week uh, of the eyewitness accounts. But the other thing we know about Luke is that Luke was a doctor, a medical doctor. Uh, Luke would have known that this was a little bit unusual. Uh, he, he wouldn't have just written this down without thinking about it. No, for Luke, he knew it wasn't made up and that's why he wrote it down. He thought that it happened. When he investigated it, he thought that it happened. And he wrote it down because he knew that these events had profound significance for humanity, for every single one of us. We live in a dark and a gloomy world, a world that is full of sin and death and all kinds of trouble, which I can't observe or even measure. There is broken relationships, unfulfilled dreams, disappointments, tears, tragedies and all the more. At Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God has intervened. He's done something. He's sent his son into the gloom to shine a bright and glorious light. Jesus came to die so that our relationship with God could be restored and more than that, to be raised as king forever, to bring in a wonderful, glorious kingdom full of truth and righteousness and everything good. The question for us today is, will we believe it? Will we believe it? Will we believe that God has actually intervened into our world? Well, as we finish, we note one last difference between uh, the prediction of John's birth and the prediction of Jesus' birth. And that is Mary's response. Uh, do you remember last week how Zechariah responded to the angel's message? It was unbelief. Have a look again at verse 20. The angel Gabriel said to Zechariah, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. How did Mary respond? Well, we flick down to verse 48, 45, sorry, verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed the promises of God. Mary believed that her son really would be who the angel said that she would be. She, so that's why she's counted among the blessed. She believed Jesus really was God's intervention in the world who would be the one who would grow up to be the Son of God who ruled over God's kingdom forever. She believed it. That's an amazing and a wonderful response. What about us? Do we believe the words of the angel? Do we believe that Jesus really is God's intervention who came to save us and to rule us, to bring in God's kingdom. 
Mary believed. And secondly, Mary submitted herself to the Lord. And we come to verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's significant, isn't it, that the hope of our world is a king, a king who would reign forever, not just a saviour. Mary's model shows us that the right response to the gospel word is submission, submission to the Lord. Mary is willing to be called God's servant. Mary is willing to submit to his ways. Mary is willing to take her place in God's plans. In that she is our model and someone that we can follow in. What about you? Could you say these words? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your words. Does your life look like that? Are you submitting yourself to the rule of Christ over your life from beginning to end. Let me spell it out a bit practically and then you can evaluate for yourself. Is Jesus' rule evident in your life in the way that you drive your car? How you park your car? Do you seek to honour him as you drive or are you more worried about getting to your destination ahead of everyone else as fast as possible? Is Jesus' rule evident in the way that you make decisions about your future, about your life, your family? Do you consider him as you seek to do your job? Do you seek his honour as you seek to raise your kids? Or are you thinking about something else? Is his rule evident in where your hope for the future is? Is your hope something in this world? Family, friends, money, whatever it is. Or in Jesus' kingdom. Is his rule evident in how you speak, how you act, how you think, in who you are living for? Mary submitted herself to the Lord. She said, Behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Perhaps today we need to repent and submit again to Jesus' rule over our lives. Our world is one that is marked with gloom and suffering. God has intervened by sending his son to save us and to rule us. Have you let him intervene in your own life? Have you allowed him to take the rightful place of king over you? Will you believe who he is and submit yourself to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing such great grace, not only to Mary, but to ourselves, in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and save us. We thank you that in his death he dealt with all of our failures, all of our sins, and that he brought us back into relationship with you. And we thank you that he was raised again, that he rules even now at your right hand and he will rule for eternity over our world. Heavenly Father, help us to believe that when everything in our world screams against us, 
Help us to believe that you have intervened and submit ourselves to you in every part of our life. We pray that as we approach Christmas, that we'd be different from the world that is walking in darkness. Help us to follow Jesus, to celebrate his lordship over us. And we pray that you would have mercy on our friends, our family and our colleagues, that you would help them also to bow their knee to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.